So we're continuing our walk through the Psalms here at Disciple Dojo. If you've missed previous episodes in this playlist, they're all together here on the channel. So go check those out. The goal is not to give a verse by verse exegesis of every possible nuance of the Psalm, but rather to just get familiarity with the Psalms, to understand the overall message of each of these ancient songs, which is what they were. So we'll start off with reading from the old NIV translation. We're going to read through the whole Psalm once, and then we'll go and zoom in a little bit and go verse by verse through the Hebrew and compare it to other translations out there. Psalm 8, for the director of music, according to Getith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So Psalm 8, a very short psalm. This comes right after the series of psalms that began all the way back in Psalm 2, the Messianic Psalms. And Psalm 2 was celebrating the enthronement of God's Messiah, the King of Israel. And we saw songs that had to do with when it doesn't look like things are going the way they should go according to Psalm 2, what's going on? And so we had laments and we had imprecation and we had the range of emotions that the psalmist is feeling as someone who is persecuted, as someone who is slandered, as someone who is not experiencing being over God's creation and all things being put under his feet. And so in commenting on this psalm, Michael Wilcock in his Bible Speaks Today uh, message of the Psalms volume says, if the compilers reckoned that the intervening psalms were all related in some way to the David and Absalom story, which is what we've talked about in previous episodes, the group would have been well framed by Psalms 2 and 8. Perhaps the germ of the latter, Psalm 8, came to David, the shepherd boy, marveling at the night sky above the hills of Bethlehem. But it is David the king before and after the great rebellion, that is, realizing at his accession, Psalm 2, and more fully after his restoration, Psalm 8, the privilege of being God's deputy, who provides a richer background for the sequence. You can't really peg all of the Psalms as directly telling a narrative or tied to any particular narrative. There are more songs that are meant to transcend specific instances, but seeing the overall flow or the logic of how the Psalms are arranged is sometimes helpful. And so in that regard, this Psalm does come as kind of a fitting bookend to Psalm 2 in terms of the experiences, the wildly varying experiences of the King of Israel, King David. And so let's look at the psalm again. We'll look at the Hebrew text and a number of different translations, including the Septuagint, because in this psalm, there are some differences between the Hebrew and the Septuagint, and those get reflected in the various English translations. And let's see what we can come away with from this psalm. So again, it begins like most of the psalms with the musical reference or the direction, Lemnatseach al Hagetith. So to the director, to the chief musician, however we want to translate Lamnatseach, upon the Getith. And 
pretty much every translation just leaves that transliterated. Is the gatith a musical instrument? Is this a type of harp? Is this a type of woodwind? Is this a musical notation? Maybe the tune, like based on the tune of? Don't know. And so it's best in that case, instead of guessing, which is what any attempt to translate it would be, it's best to just leave it as a word that we don't quite know exactly what it refers to. But we do know this is Mizmor le David, a song to, for, or by David. Now this song begins and ends in the exact same way. There's an inclusio. Inclusio is just a fancy way of saying it bookends it. So you have this line at the beginning, and then you're gonna have this exact same line at the end of the song. And it begins, Yahweh, there's the name right there, Adonai, Yahweh, Adonainu, our Lord. And this is the word for Lord, Adonai. When you come to Yahweh, again, most of the time, pious Jews would just say Adonai, which means Lord, instead of pronouncing the divine name, Yahweh. So hearing this read in a synagogue would be something like Adonai, Adonainu, Yahweh, our Lord, our King, our Sovereign, Ma'adir Shimcha, how wonderful, how marvelous, how majestic, magnificent your name, Shimka, in all the earth or in all the land. Aretz can mean earth, it can mean land, context determines, but it's basically what's not the sky and what's not the sea is Haaretz. So all of the earth is fine or all of the land. Asher Tana, who put your majesty your magnificence, so you who put your magnificence, al hashamayim, over the heavens. Shamayim, the word for sky, for heavens. It can refer to like the sky above where water comes down in the form of rain. It can refer to the, what we would call outer space where all the planets are. It can even refer to heaven, like where God himself dwells. So it has a much wider semantic range than either the English word heaven or sky would have. But God's majesty, his, his hode is above that. So it's beyond even whatever we look up and see, whatever that is, even beyond that is the majesty of Yahweh. That's the beginning of this psalm, and that's how this psalm is going to end. That is the main message that the psalmist is trying to convey. And then it immediately swings to like this complete opposite image. So from the grandeur of the celestial realm, the heavens that are uncountable, that are unfathomable, then you have this really sharp turn from the mouth of and ololim, babies, infants, and yonakim, literally sucklings, nursing babies. From their mouths, yesadta oz. You have established, you have founded, you have put in place strength, might. Now, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, differs here. It does not have, you have founded or established strength, laws. It has katertizo ainon. You have established praise. And that's where the English translations differ, whether they follow the Hebrew text or the Septuagint. So Lexham English Bible, from the mouth of children and infants, you have founded strength. King James, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained strength. These are following the Hebrew text. JPS, thou founded strength. Tanakh, you founded strength. But then the Septuagint, and here's the Lexham English Septuagint, from the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you created praise. And translations differ, especially English, because in the New Testament, when Jesus quotes this psalm, he actually quotes the Septuagint. Matthew 21, 16, his disciples 
asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. So because Jesus cited this passage and he cited the Septuagint version, some translations have said that's the correct version. That's, I mean, who knew scripture better than Jesus? And this is actually why in the updated NIV, so I read from the older NIV when we first looked at the psalm, but in the updated NIV 2011, they've translated this verse as through the praise of children and infants. So not from the mouth of, but through the praise of, that's what they're pulling from the Septuagint meaning, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. And so that's how they're taking the word oz as not strength in general, but a bulwark, a fortress, a stronghold. So the NIV 2011 is actually trying to bring both meanings to bear. And so their reasoning, I believe, is that this is in the Hebrew text, or at least in the Hebrew text as it was known by early Greek-speaking Jews. Now, for more on the Septuagint and why it matters and why we should read it and take it into account, check out our video here on the channel where we talk about what the Septuagint is and what versions even of the Septuagint are available out there for you to use. Regardless, the main thrust of this is after saying that God's glory is above the highest heavens, it contrasts that with, but even from the mouth of babies, infants, nursing little ones, God establishes strength. And by extension, that's why people praise. I mean, you're praised in the world, in the ancient world. Rulers were praised because of their strength, because of their might. And so in the words of this psalm, yeah, the heavens are magnificent, but even the mouths of infants, even the little nursing gurgles and gasps and cries, the weakest elements of creation still testify to God's strength. In order to make cease, the hashbit, this is where the verb Shabbat comes from, to rest, to cease, to bring an end to, to stop, oyev umithnakem and avenger. The avenger in scripture is one who seeks to take the life of someone, to avenge for a perceived crime or even for a real crime. But this is like an executioner, we might say. So the strength that God has established in this psalm, in the poetic imagery of this psalm, is on the lips of infants and babies to protect against enemy and avenger. Now, interpreters have wondered how exactly this image is supposed to be working, like at at the literal level, what is the psalmist saying? What kind of claim is he making? And whether it is involving praise that God is establishing or strength, security that God is establishing. Craig Broyles, in his uh, Understanding the Bible commentary, he says, what either of these versions mean and what either has to do with silencing the foe is not self-evident. Like there's some question about this. The rest of the psalm may provide the clue. In verses 3 through 8, we shall see celebrated that although humans initially appear insignificant, they have a position of power, not by virtue of their innate abilities, but by virtue of God's ordaining it. So that's what's going to come in the rest of the psalm. How then are the lips of mere infants connected with strength? And this is what he suggests. Their cries are heard by their parents. So strength resides in the cry of the one who has privileged access to the one who embodies strength. So just as a baby's cry is heard and responded to by a parent, in the case of a nursing baby, the baby cries because he's hungry. And so the mother is the one who comes and nurses the child. So this little baby's cry was able to move this powerful parent to act to save that child. 
against hunger. And so that's what Broyles is suggesting. Humans have this unimaginable place of honor in creation, but because of who we have access to in our cries, which is the one who embodies all strength. God of all creation. And so he concludes, God has so ordered creation that the innately powerless have access to power, which is what Psalms are meant to bring about anyway. This is why there's a whole prayer book. Psalms are prayers crying out to the source of all power and strength and comfort and might. And then from little babies, we go back out into the highest of heavens. Verse four, ki area shamecha. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers. And then he gives the examples, Yareach, moon, Vakokabim, and stars, Asher, Konanta, which you have established or you have set up, you have put in place. The idea of like, you know, the works of your finger, like putting things in place. I just, you think of like somebody building with Legos or something, you know, like that you have to be delicate and use your fingers. That's why it's works of your fingers, not works of your hands necessarily. The image is one of delicacy of little things, but those little things that are at the fingertips of God are the heavens the moon and the stars. And so the psalmist is juxtaposing these things. When I look at that, when I see the heavens, he asks the question that every astrophysicist, every astronomer asks the same question once they start to realize the scale of the universe. From Neil deGrasse Tyson to Brian Cox to Laura Danley to Amy Manzer to any of these astronomy popularizers out there, almost all of them have said, we can't imagine how insignificant humanity is when we just step back and look at the scope of the cosmos. Carl Sagan was saying this back in the 70s, it's just this, this little pale blue dot that we live on, utterly insignificant, meaningless. You know, the Apollo astronauts looking at the earth rise over the horizon of the moon and just thinking everything that we've ever known, experienced, and and had any interaction with whatsoever is on that blue marble floating in space. For some people, it just magnifies the insignificance of humanity. And the Bible does the same thing. That's what people think of, well, people just thought humans were the center of everything and they were the crown of creation and all that. Not exactly. The Hebrew Bible was very familiar with looking up at an unlight polluted sky and just being like, this is beyond anything we can imagine. And they didn't have any idea of the extent. They didn't know that those were actually other galaxies out there. You know, it took Edwin Hubble to blow the universe up trillions of times from what people thought it was. But even when they just thought it was all one galaxy, the size of it overwhelmed people. And so the psalmist asks, Ma Anosh, what is man, human, the word Anosh, generic word for person, Kitis Karenu, that you think of him, remember him. This is the root of this verb is zakar, to remember, or to have a memorial, or to pay attention to. What is Anosh? What is man that you pay attention to him? Ben Adam, or son of man, Kitif Kadenu, that you visit him, that you call upon him, that you pakad is like, that you notice him that you pay attention to him. So the psalmist is saying exactly what all of the secular astronomers say today. When they look at the heavens, what are we? Why is humanity anything in this vast cosmos? Back in the 1800s, the biblical interpreter, Adam Clark, a Methodist biblical scholar, I love his response because it's it shows you one that 
you know, biblical scholars were paying attention to the astronomy of their day and drawing the same lesson. Clark says the planet Herschel or Georgium Cetus, known on the continent of Europe by the name of Uranus. That's what Uranus was called, at least among the Brits, was Herschel or George. Who knew that that's what they were going to call Uranus? But fortunately, Uranus won out. So this planet is 80 times and a half greater than the Earth. Saturn 995 times greater, Jupiter 1,281 times greater, and the Sun, the most prodigious body in the system, 1,384,462 times greater. The circumference of the Sun contains not fewer than 2,777,000 English miles and a degree of latitude which on the earth amounts only to 69 miles and a half will on the sun contain not less than about 7,740 miles, a quantity almost equal to the terrestrial axis. But the intense volume in cubic miles which the solar surface includes amounts to the following most inconceivable quantity. 366 quintillion, 252 trillion, 303 billion, 118 million, 868,128. And he just spells that all out. Notwithstanding the amazing magnitude of the sun, we have abundant reason to believe that some of the fixed stars are much larger, which is definitely true as we've learned in the past 200 and something years. And yet we are told they are the work of God's fingers. What a hand to move, form, and launch these globes. So this has always been the case. People have always marveled at how can the universe be so vast and humanity have any meaning whatsoever. And the psalmist, if you've tracked, this psalm has followed a vertical movement down. It started with above the heavens, and then the moon and the stars, and then it's continuing down to humanity, who are a little lower than the angels. As we see in verse six, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and with glory and majesty, you crowned him. So it continues that downward movement from the moon and the stars now to the heavenly beings down to son of man and the, the head crowning him. There's the literal word with glory and majesty, you crowned him so that the head of a human and Temshilehu, you made him rule over the works of your hands. So it's this crazy paradox, like the works of God's hands. And here it does use hands, not fingers, because it's talking about in general, it's not just speaking about the heavens, but this is a kind of a broader way of saying everything you've made. You've put man over this. This is hearkening back to Genesis 1. Humanity as the crown of creation. And the psalmist, it's like the psalmist is familiar with Genesis 1 and what humanity was created to be. But when he looks up at the stars, it doesn't make sense. And it's the same feeling that a lot of astronomers feel. When they see the scope of the universe, it doesn't make sense that humanity can be anything. And yet for the psalmist, unlike the modern secular astronomer, the psalmist also knows Genesis 1 to be true. And so he's holding on to both of these truths in this song. That somehow, in some way, that doesn't make sense, God has made humanity rule over the works of his hands. Everything, kol, you have placed, shatah, Tahath Raglau, under his feet. 
And so now we've come all the way down to literally the earth, the foot that touches the earth. So we've gone from this vertical movement from the highest beyond the heavens where God's glory is, his majesty dwells above the heavens, down to the heavens, to the moon and the stars, to the heavenly beings that God has created humanity under, crowning them and all the works of God's hands on the earth that had been placed under his feet, the feet of humanity. So the psalmist has kind of made this descent down to everyday shepherd boy level, looking up at the night sky and wondering about all this. Now pause real quick and address another difference between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. Verse six, which is verse five in English, you made him a little less. That's how you'd say this whole verb. The, the verb it comes from is to decrease. And it's, it's, so it's like you, you decreased him or you, you, you shrunk him or you made him a little less me'at, a little, not a lot. Or me'at could also be for a little while. So me'at could refer to like little as an amount of time before something happens, or it could refer to quantity, like a little bit less than. The Hebrew can hold both meanings. Me'elohim. So you made him less a little from God, from Elohim, or than Elohim. That's how you'd say than in Hebrew is you'd use this prefix mem. Now, Elohim, this is translated in Hebrew. This is just the normal word for God. So this could be saying you made humanity a little less than you, than God. Or Elohim can be translated as something more of a, maybe a generic category for celestial beings or heavenly beings, whether good or bad, whether worshiped as gods or just servants of God, they would all be in the category of Elohim. And that's how the Septuagint translators took it. Because in the Septuagint is, you made them a little lower than angels. You can see it there, angelus. And again, you can see that for the New Testament authors, for the author of the book of Hebrews, when he quotes this psalm, he quotes the Septuagint translation of angels. It says, but there's a place where someone has testified, you made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And then he says, now in putting everything under them, God left nothing that's not subject to them. And that's the message of this psalm is everything is under the control of Anosh, of Ben Adam, of humanity or son of man. And then the author of Hebrews being no dummy goes, but at present, we don't see everything subject to them which is what the previous Psalms in this series have been crying out about as well. But the text itself, either way, whether we go with the Septuagint translation of angels or the Hebrew of Elohim, the meaning is the same, that humanity was created in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, to be either a little less or for a little while less than other divine beings and other Elohim, that humanity was created to rule over creation and to be God's vice regent. But the events of Genesis 3 happened and that rise over all of creation never fully materialized. And this has been the ongoing story of scripture and human existence ever since. But the psalmist is pointing to the fact of what humanity was intended to be and how incredible and mind boggling that is to even think about. And then after having come down in vertical movement to humanity from the highest of heavens, now the psalm is going to move, and Rolf Jacobson points this out in his commentary, it's going to move outward to the extent of everything that humanity has earthly experience with, echoing Genesis 1 creation. And so verse 8, verse 7 in English, you read, Sonet, flocks, the alathim, and literally thousands. This is the word elif. It gets translated thousands, but elif, as we've seen in our look at how 
Hebrew numbers are used in the Bible, uh, one of Eleph's meanings is also like group or regiment or even herd, like a herd of cattle. So flock and cattle, all of them, kulam, vagam behemot sadai, and even the behemot, the behemoths of the field, beasts of the field or animals that are out there. Behema is just kind of the word for like a big type of livestock, but sadai is the field or out in the wild. So flocks, herds, even the wild animals, these are the things that God has put under humanity's feet to push a mayim, bird of the heaven and fish of the sea. So not just beasts of the field, animals, but even the birds in the heavens and even the fish in the sea. Gober achoth yamim and things crossing the paths of the sea. So even things in the sea that aren't what typically you'd think of as fish, which in the mind of the ancient, this would call back to concepts of the sea serpent, the, the unknown creatures of the great deep, the taninim, even, even all the other stuff that swims in the currents of the deep that we don't even have knowledge of. The psalmist is saying God has created humanity to be over all of that. And so he ends with this same line that the psalm began with, Yahweh Adonainu, ma'adir shimcha bakol ha'aretz. How magnificent is your name in all the earth. And as usual, Charles Spurgeon puts it beautifully when looking at this psalm. Spurgeon says, In the sky, the massive orbs rolling in their stupendous grandeur are witnesses of his power in great things. While here below, the lisping utterances of babes are the manifestations of his strength in little ones. How often will children tell us of a God whom we have forgotten? He who delights in the songs of angels is pleased to honor himself in the eyes of his enemies by the praises of little children. What a contrast between the glory above the heavens and the mouths of babes and sucklings. Yet by both the name of God is made excellent. And so that's what you have in this psalm, this juxtaposition of the greatest, most grand thing and the weakest, most insignificant things. The heaven of heavens or the great creatures of the deep, if you rather you want to go vertically up or horizontally out from humanity. And then the most insignificant of them all is, is little babies. And yet what scripture is saying is that is what God has set up. And in some way that we can't understand, God has put forth humanity to be the crown of his creation. And it doesn't make sense. So when secularists balk at it today, I'm like, I, I get it. I agree with you. It's ridiculous. You know, looking at Voyager's pale blue dot and thinking that that is in some way on the radar of anyone not living on that little blue dot. I, I get it. I understand. It doesn't make sense. And yet... It's what we see embodied in Jesus. See, this is a psalm about humanity in general, but it says, what is Anosh that you would zakar? What is a person that you would remember him? Or a son of man, Ben Adam, that you would visit him, that you would come inspect him, however you want to translate that. And both of those are titles that Jesus took upon himself. Jesus was the Bar Anashah, is how you'd say it in Daniel in, in uh, Aramaic. The Son of Man, Jesus, stood collectively for all of humanity. Parallels the fate of what is going to be the fate of all of humanity who are in him through corporate solidarity. So it's like Jesus is taking on his back the identity of all of us 
as the Son of Man, this divine representative of Yahweh, Jesus is sort of taking on all of humanity on his back and being what we were intended to be. And because of that, he is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. So the New Testament authors could look back on this psalm and not try to ferret out predictions and say, aha, Jesus fulfilled it, but to could see what this psalm is saying at a big picture level and then could go, huh, look at Jesus. Look at how he is doing what this psalm is saying that humanity was to be and to do. Jesus is uniquely fulfilling this son of man thing. And it's no coincidence, that's the title that Jesus chose to use of himself more than any other title. So this is what gave the early Christian readers uh, insight to go back and look at the text of this psalm. They would have been looking at the Septuagint, but the Hebrew readers of the psalm would not have missed these same things either because it's there in the Hebrew as well. That this seemingly insignificant is elevated to a position of unbelievable majesty by God. And it's just mind boggling. And so the juxtaposition of, of children imagery and, and important work of his hands, God creating the universe imagery, uh, Jacobson in, in his commentary in Nikot pulls it together beautifully. I love this quote. He says, any person who has been around small children may be able to relate to the message here. Children do not want only to be helped and provided for. Children want to help, to contribute, to be valuable to the household. They want to do things themselves. The powerful message of this psalm is that God does not merely care about human beings, but values them so much that they are given a role in God's economy. I love the way he puts that. That is the message of this psalm. So reading this psalm, whether from the original audience point of view in the Old Covenant, where it's just marveling at what God has called humanity to be in light of how grand everything else is and how seemingly insignificant humanity is and how it doesn't look like everything is put under humanity's feet, reading it that way brings out the meaning of the psalm. And then looking at it through the lens of the New Testament and how the New Testament authors in three different New Testament books apply this psalm to the gospel and read this psalm through the lens of Jesus as the ultimate son of man, through whom corporate solidarity-wise, what's true of him becomes true of all who are in him, then you start to see that the New Testament authors weren't just mining the Old Testament to pull out random quotes that they could apply to Jesus. They are looking at the message of the Old Testament, and then they're looking at the events of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit, and they're seeing, oh, this is being fulfilled in ways that we didn't even catch before now. And so it's reading scripture in a circle, but you can't do that if you don't know the text for what it is originally. And that's the purpose of this walk through Psalm 8. So I hope that's helpful. Stay tuned for more as we continue to go through the Psalms. The more familiar they are to us in their original setting, the more you will see when you read how they're used in the New Testament. So let's make them familiar to us. That's all for now. If you appreciate this series and you haven't already, go ahead and click that subscribe button and enable the notifications icon. That'll let you know when we have new videos coming out in this series, because we do a number of different types of videos here at Disciple Dojo, and YouTube's algorithm is gonna tell you which of those you see, unless you enable notifications and say, no, I wanna see whatever Disciple Dojo is putting out so I don't miss anything, and, and 
catch things that are of interest to you. But if you don't do that, it's just up to YouTube's algorithm what they're going to show you on your screen whenever you log on. So be sure you do that. It's a great way to support this channel. Thank you to all of you who have subscribed. Stay tuned for more. A lot coming up here at Disciple Dojo, but that'll do it for this episode. See you next time. And as always, keep training. Keep training.